Well, let's open our Bibles again to Luke's Gospel as we have the privilege of continuing our series on this marvelous Gospel. Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 40 to the end of the chapter. Will you pray with me? Our Father, it is a great delight to turn to your word, and we would ask that you would enable us, your people, to set aside everything but the thought of how we may bring glory to you in the way in which we hear your word read and proclaimed this day. It is a joy to see Christ on every page of Scripture, and it is also our need, for our need is deep and great. You have saved us from our sins, but you also are saving us, and you are growing us and maturing us and ripening us for our heavenly home. Help us, therefore, as we live under the authority of your word as a pilgrim people, to be determined that we will submit our minds, our hearts, our wills to the authority of Holy Scripture, that it may be our great passion in life to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And how grateful we are in the knowledge that as your people worship and the word of God is proclaimed and we are fed and nourished, that we can take this word, this, this word that is so eminently practical into everyday living, into our homes and workplaces and into our closets and our private lives, which are never private before you, for you see all, you know all, and you care all about us. You know us exhaustively, and so we pray that you would meet our heart's need but that also as your people worship this morning, and there may be those here who do not know Christ, that as they hear the Savior proclaimed and see your people worship in joy and reverence and awe, that they may also be drawn by the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit into a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And we would pray that everyone would be able to say as they leave here this morning, he loved me and gave himself for me, as did Paul the Apostle long ago. Meet us here then in your word and in your praises, we ask in the name of our sovereign head and king and savior, our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Take your copy of God's word, if you will, and let's stand together. Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 40. This is the word of God. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, And she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. 
And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Who is this? That's the question on which Luke rivets our attention. In a sequence of miracles, he shows the authority of Jesus. Winds obey him, waves obey him. Luke shows the authority of Jesus over demons that tremble at his voice. And as we see here, even the dead come to life at the command and the authority of Jesus Christ. And in this beautiful passage this morning, we have two personal narratives bound by human tragedy. A woman who had suffered from a debilitating disease for 12 years, and the sadness of a girl whose life was cut short at the age of 12 years. And so we begin, first of all, with 12 years of tragic suffering, 12 years of tragic suffering. A synagogue official, Jairus by name, fell at Jesus' feet, imploring that Jesus come and heal his daughter, for she was dying. The text makes it plain it was an only daughter, and she was 12 years old. Now, this was a critical time for her. This would have been the time in which she is entering into her maturity. Again, different place, different age, different time. She would have been approaching marriageable age. All of the great longings and desires for a home and a family and all of these sorts of things would be before her and would be before her family. What a relief that Jesus went with Jairus. Now he must have thought, there's hope for my daughter. Jesus could hardly move, however, because of the crowd. Now I wonder, the text doesn't say, but it's legitimate to think through these things and to wonder 
I can't help but think that Jairus would have thought, oh, I wish the crowd would just move aside, just part as did the Red Sea so that we could get on with this. My daughter is dying and the press of the crowd is slowing up the process of getting Jesus to her in time that he may heal her. But in the process, a woman who had experienced bleeding for 12 years is mentioned in this text, and we read in verse 43, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. What a pitiable condition. It's really pathetic. It is sad. Debilitation, weakness, discouragement, depression, and even poverty as the result of this debilitating illness. Now, I looked up some possible cures that might have been administered by these doctors she had paid all her money to over the years. Uh, This comes from Vincent Word's studies, and uh, he's quoting sections of the Talmud. So a little bit later, but probably very similar, if not the exact same medical treatment would have been offered to this woman. Here are a few of them. Uh, Take of the gum of Alexandria, the weight of a fraction of a silver coin, an alum, and, uh, and the same of crocus, and let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take, a, take Persian onions, uh, three pints, boil them in wine, and give her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand, and let someone come behind and frighten her, and say, Arise from thy flux. But if that do no good, take a handful of cumin, a kind of fennel, and a handful of crocus, and a handful of fenugreek, another kind of fennel. Let these be boiled in wine, and give them to her to drink, and say, Arise from thy flux." If these do no good, other doses over ten in number are prescribed, and one of them is is here. Let them dig seven ditches in which let them burn some cuttings of vines, uh, not yet four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine and let them lead her away from the ditch and make her sit down over that, and let them remove her from that and make her sit down over another saying to her each time, arise from thy flux. So she had spent all of her money on remedies like that. And is it no surprise, nothing worked. It's interesting that Luke, the physician, records that she had spent all her money on cures that had not worked. Mark says that she had suffered many things of many physicians She suffered in many ways. She suffered socially. And if you had time to go back to Leviticus 15, you would read that she remained ceremonially unclean as long as the bleeding lasted. So this woman is sick. She's very sick, but also shunned by society. She's religiously isolated. And hearing about Jesus, she's determined to touch his garment. Verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. The tassels probably that were attached to Jesus' garment as a reminder of God's commandments, or perhaps the border of his garment. The point is, she came up behind very unobtrusively. She was not seeking at this point a relationship with Jesus. One commentator well said, the smoldering wick of her faith is fanned into flame by Jesus' action. She came up behind, she touched his garment, and she is immediately healed. 
she must have said to herself, I'm healed. Twelve years I've had this flow of blood. It has been with me every moment, and I, I'm healed of my disease, my sickness, my illness. Jesus said, who is it that touched me? He would draw the woman out and show her himself. He will not allow her to miss the real issue in faith, a personal relationship with him. And Peter says to the crowd, says of the crowd, the crowd is so large, how can you think that that we can know who touched you? I mean, it's a huge crowd, but notice that Jesus insists in verse 46, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Now, don't think of that power that went out of Jesus as some impersonal uh, shot of electricity. Uh, It was the personal power of the personal God who loves and who cares, and Jesus would know the woman who touched him and would have her know him. And so the woman knew that she must come forward, and she does, and we read in verse 47, and when the woman saw that she was not hidden... She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. She came trembling, trembling with emotion, undoubtedly trembling with great fear. Why such emotion? Why such fear? Because in touching Jesus, she knew that she made him ritually unclean. Uh, Because she perhaps fears a rebuke for having touched him. I think it's because she comes into the strange presence of a man who can do what no doctor can do, what no person could do, but only what God could do. And so the woman came forward trembling, and Jesus says, daughter, he doesn't rebuke her. He wants her to come. He wants to know her. He wants her to know him. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." Now, made you well is the, the verb sozo. It's a different form of the verb, but it's from the word sozo that means save. And sometimes when healings come, they're simply called salvation. They're used, uh, that word is used just to mean healing. I'm absolutely convinced in this case, the Lord Jesus is saying something more than you've been healed. He's saying, I'm now bringing you into a saving relationship with myself. You came to be healed. I want you to know me. You have been brought into the kingdom. You have been brought into the realm of salvation. And he reassures this woman. Again, he doesn't rebuke her. He welcomes her, just as Jesus continues to welcome those who come to him today. And he says to her, Thugater, daughter. Some find it remarkable that Jesus does not rebuke her approach and finds her her faith to be real and true here. But this this is very crucial, I think, and instructive. Her faith healed her, not faith in the abstract, but the object of her faith who is Jesus Christ. And you may be a person who is becoming at a distance from behind, interested in Jesus. God usually brings people to himself incrementally. Understanding is usually very gradual. My counsel to you is not to dwell on the quality of your faith at all, but to dwell upon the object of faith, who is Jesus. Before knowing Christ is like seeing stained glass from the outside. Have you ever seen a great cathedral? You look from the outside at the stained glass and you think, well, that's not terribly impressive. 
But then you go to the inside of the cathedral, and as the light shines through, and perhaps as the day moves along, more light and more light comes, then you see the brilliant pictures that take on life and luster more and more. Looking outside is unbelief. Being brought on the inside is the result of saving faith. The light begins to show through, and you begin to see something of the brilliance, the luster, the wonder, the glory of who Jesus Christ is and all of his power and authority and loveliness and care. And so he says to this woman, go in peace. It's a usual expression, of course, but not usual when it comes from the lips of Jesus Christ and he speaks it to a person's heart. Yes, there's restoration of health. Yes, there's restoration to society. But more, the peace of God is upon her. His benediction has been placed upon her. The peace that passes all understanding, the shalom of God, reconciliation through eventually the cross to which Jesus is moving is upon this woman. And ultimately, this is the peace that comes through what Jesus alone would do when he shed his blood for this woman. And when I realize that God is at peace with me, then I can begin to live in peace within. It must have been a remarkable thing for this woman. She's been sick 12 years. Now she's healed. And also, God, through Jesus Christ, the Son, has spoken peace to her heart. Don't you find that wonderful? Don't you find it truly remarkable? But we read in verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Now imagine Jairus. If only you hadn't waited to help this woman to find out who touched you. Now the text again doesn't tell us that, but I'm a father. I would think that way. If only, if only, if only, now it's too late and the suspense builds. The text is concerned with the authority of Jesus, let me remind you. Jesus is in control. Jesus is not distressed. He is not deterred by the message, and he calls for faith. In verse 50, Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Be well? She's dead. Only believe and she will be well, but she has died. And that moves us, secondly, into 12 short years of life. 12 short years of life. Hadn't Jairus just heard Jesus tell the woman that her faith had saved her? Yes. But a case of bleeding is one thing. Death, that's quite another. Well, it is for us, but it's not for Jesus. And Jesus came to the place where this young girl lay, took Peter, James, and John with him and the child's parents. He put out the mourners because they do not have a proper place in what will become a very happy scene. And these disciples will also, Peter, James, and John, will also, in just a few texts from here, see the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration. They also will be with him in Gethsemane. And in this passage, with the raising of this girl, they will be privileged to see an anticipation 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself from the dead. Those gathered wept and mourned. Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish Christian biblical scholar, put it so beautifully, within the tumult and weeping, the wail of the mourners, real or hired, and the melancholy sound of the mourning flutes called flutes of the dead, sad preparation for and pageantry of an eastern funeral broke with a dismal discord on the majestic calm of assured victory over death with which Jesus had entered the house of mourning. And so here then is Jesus, life himself, in the midst of death. The girl is dead, but Jesus has a totally different perspective. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Well, she was dead. Why did Jesus say what he said? Because he's God, God incarnate, God become man. He says she is not dead but sleeping because, let me remind you, sleeping people wake up. Sleeping people wake up. Jesus is expressing his absolute authority over death. Death is not the final word. And in the last day, Christian, he will raise the dead. And so the text tells us they laughed at Jesus. A.T. Robertson in his section on Mark that deals with this, this theme says, the presence of some people will ruin the atmosphere for spiritual work. <laughs> well, they're laughing at Jesus. They're skeptics. But you see, miracles are not done to convince skeptics. The day is coming when no skeptic will laugh, but will bow the knee before Jesus Christ and his sovereignty. By the way, even a skeptic such as David Strauss cannot invent an idea of myth to explain the historical details that he finds here in this passage. Edersheim says of him, his denial does not rest on any historical foundation. Well, of course not. In other words, he doesn't even try to find an excuse He rejects Christ because he rejects Christ. But Jesus raises the girl to life. We read so simply in verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. It is as easy for Jesus to raise the dead as it is to arouse a sleeping child. Or maybe in your case, that's not an easy thing. But it's easy for Jesus to raise the dead. And verse 55 confirms that she indeed had been dead. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once. He took her by the hand. He gave a very loving and gracious command. Mark's gospel, interestingly, records the very Aramaic words, Talithikumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now think of it, even the dead, the wind obey his voice, but waves obey his voice, demons obey his voice, diseases, they're nothing before Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ even raises the dead. 
because nothing is impossible for Jesus Christ. This kind of authority raises the question, who is this? Who is this? And Jesus would keep the details as private as possible. In the miracle, the light of his deity is shining through his true humanity, but only after the resurrection will there be complete understanding. And note the vivid human detail he directed that something uh, should be given her to eat. After all, she is a teenager. (laughs) Now at this point, I think that it's helpful for us to review the meaning of miracles of Jesus in the Gospels and to apply that to what we read here so that we can see truly how wonderful, how astounding, how stupendous is the passage How beautiful, how authoritative, how wonderful is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so thirdly, the message of the miracles. The message of the miracles. The miracles are revelations of Jesus and his kingdom. They show that the saving reign of the Lord has begun among us. The miracles point to Christ as cosmic ruler, as the one who came to reverse the effects of the fall and to restore all things and us in the midst of this sinful world. Jesus is the creator who came to recreate. He is the one who comes to renew. He is the one who comes to restore. The restoration is first hinted at by the theme of uncleanness in these passages. He confronted unclean spirits among the tombs. The pigs were unclean animals. The woman's menstrual disorder was ritually unclean. And we have the uncleanness of a corpse. Touching a corpse made one ritually unclean. But there is a greater uncleanness that Jesus would share. He went to the cross and there shared the uncleanness to which the ceremonial uncleanness pointed when he took upon himself our guilt, took upon himself our ugly sin, our pollution, when he took that upon himself, when he took our death that we deserve to die, when he did that, the restoration is hinted at by, more than hinted at, by the theme of uncleanness. But restoration is also, in the next, in the next way, pointed to, by the theme of resurrection. For even though this was a resurrection to earthly life or resuscitation to earthly life, the raising of Jairus' daughter also takes us to the end of Luke where Jesus himself is raised by God's power from the grave. And this is the miracle of miracles that suffuses its light on the healing of the woman and raises, raises our eyes to the day in which we Recall that Jesus will return and he will raise the dead imperishable and give to us glorified bodies that will be like his own resurrection body. And so out of this passage shines through the resurrection of this 12-year-old girl who had died, out of it shines forward the light that points to the empty tomb. And then from the empty tomb, Jesus having been raised from the dead, the light shines back upon this passage and shines into your life and mine. Don't you see every resurrection, every miracle points to the resurrection of the cosmos through Jesus Christ. Every resurrection points to our risen Lord who has come to be recreative in the midst of the fallenness of this world. It is that miracle of miracles 
that suffuses its light into our lives. For if death was the end, we would all be hopeless and we would remain helplessly in the grip of the evil one and of our sin. But, people of God, death is not the end. There is not only life beyond the grave, but there is the greater promise of resurrection to come. The trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And this means that Jesus Christ, who is our resurrection, is himself the death of death. And life, your life, your everyday living, I mean in the midst of the grunge of the fallenness of this world, the heartaches, the hardships, your life, everyday life is full of meaning because your Savior is not dead, a Savior who could not save, but He is alive, He rules, He reigns, He loves you, He saves you, and he will bring you to your promised heavenly home. So can you not see then why a major theme of our text is the theme of faith? The woman believed and she was saved. Jairus was told to believe and the daughter of this man, this poor 12-year-old, this poor sad man, she would be alive. She would be well. And we are now, you and I, are called upon to believe in Jesus and to live by the resurrection reality. Easter has burst upon our lives. And just as the full meaning of who Jesus is was for Jesus' disciples illumined by the light of Easter, this text, what happened here, would receive its full illumination when they understood that Jesus had been raised bodily from the tomb after going to the cross and dying for our sins. So the meaning of life is illumined for us now as we understand that our Savior lives and is not dead. Now, how many of us think that death and sadness are credible but that resurrection is incredible, obscure, uncertain, or even impossible. We tend to think of death as the ultimate reality and resurrection as elusive, as vague, just an incredible wish. But I assure you on the authority of God's word that the opposite is the case. Without the resurrection of Jesus, nothing makes sense. In the resurrection, death is conquered. Death is now in retreat. It is a vanquished enemy, and life, glorious life, glorious, pulsating life, bright and wonderful, is yours if you believe in him through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is fundamental to faith. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. It's fundamental to faith. It's absolutely basic. But does that mean that we believers no longer struggle? You know, when it comes to death, it seems to me, sometimes with sickness, and often as it relates to our children, what we struggle most with is timing. Stopping to help this woman with a flow of blood must have seemed a lifetime to this father, 
disastrous to the father of the dying girl because time is of the essence. You need to get there quickly so that you can heal her. And we learn again that God's ways are not our ways. You remember in John 11, around verses 5 and 6, that's the narrative that speaks of the resurrection of of Lazarus, that in verses 5 and 6, we are, are told that Martha and Mary sent the message to Jesus that the one whom he loved, Lazarus, was sick. And then the text tells us, do you know what he did? Because he knew that he was sick, he decided he would stay there longer. He didn't come. And the text tells us he didn't come so that God would be more greatly glorified. Delay undoubtedly tried Jairus' faith. But delay did not destroy Jairus' faith. Delay strengthened Jairus' faith. Delay made the object of faith more clear. And delay made the glory of God shine more resplendent resplendently in this raising of this little girl. So true faith, real faith, true faith may indeed struggle, but the thing for you and for me to remember is that the object of our faith is sure. The object of our faith is secure. Because, let us say again and let us get it down, it is not the strength of my faith or the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the object of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the Savior, Jesus Christ, that redeems and saves, not the strength of your faith. Now, I've read this or spoken of this illustration to you before, but I have to mention it this morning because it's the raising of Jairus' daughter. I've mentioned to you before Dr. A.T. Robertson, who was one of the great New Testament Greek scholars of the 20th century. He wrote that great grammar, 1,500 pages. You know, it's, uh, it's even now not surpassed. We've learned some things, but it's still the resource, really. And uh, he taught at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, love God's Word, love the Bible, love the grammar of the New Testament, spent his whole life studying it. But here's what happened to him. His biographer says, his attitude toward the Bible was a strange and beautiful admixture of erudition and childlike faith. Those who were in his home on that heartbreaking day when his beloved and unusually brilliant child, Charlotte, was taken can never forget his grief and his sorely tested faith. He was stunned beyond all words. He walked about the house helplessly with his open Greek New Testament in his hand, reading the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Grief-stricken, he said to his weeping friends, he raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? Like multitudes of Christ's disciples through the ages, the learned scholar, along with the rest, came into a new fellowship with the Christ of Gethsemane and learned to pray the same prayer, not as I will, 
but as thou wilt. Timing again. If I remember, Charlotte was 12, 13 years old. Brilliant child, apple of Dr. Robertson's eye, believer in Jesus, tender-hearted, caring. So he grieves. The timing was not what he expected. And what does he do? He goes to the Bible. He goes to this narrative. I'm not sure if it was in another gospel account, but he goes to this narrative, the raising of Jairus' daughter. He moves with the Bible in his hand up and down, up and down, up and down. He weeps and he reads the Bible. He weeps and he reads how Jesus raised this little girl to life. He says to his friends, he raised Jairus' daughter, why not mine? So he grieved, and it's right to grieve, but he did not grieve hopelessly. He grieved with the text of Scripture filling his mind and filling his heart. Not the strength of his faith, the strength of the object of his faith saved him. Because you see, Dr. Robertson knew Charlotte will be raised. God always keeps his promises. You may and will struggle, and when you do so, struggle with a Bible in your hand, with God's promises upon your lips and filling your heart. You may and will struggle with a Bible in your hand and your heart fixed on God's promise. Do not fear, only believe. Edersheim, again, the passage points, he says, to the absolute efficacy of faith, and he's so right. Our faith should be stronger. We have the whole Bible. Jesus has been raised. We are indwelt by the spirit of adoption. But whether strong or not, the object is secure. So, who is this? That's the question that was asked after Jesus still the wind and waves. Who is this is the question that is being implicitly asked all along. Who is this? This is the God-man, the second person of the Trinity that became man, that came into this world to save us from our sins. This is the God-man who raises the dead. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you will. Here's how Paul the Apostle put it, of the many passages to which we could turn. Beginning in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is 2 Timothy 1.8. Nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now that's the part I want you to see. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And God's people said, Amen.